I do hope that you have a, a do hope that you have a copy uh, of God's Word to open uh, and open with me to Numbers chapter twenty eight. Uh, you've gotten a warning already from Landon that our text today is long. Uh, indeed, it is long. It's very long. Uh, it is two chapters. Uh, we're going to be reading and studying today, today as we resume our studies, uh, Numbers chapters 28 and 29. Uh, this is not only a long passage, but a very detailed one. Uh, two chapters of ceremonial law. Uh, regulations God has for his people about uh, which animals to sacrifice during each of their days and their feasts in their uh, their church calendar. It's a long passage full of lists and details. It's the kind of thing that will very likely be difficult to read together online, especially, uh, and to read together without getting lost. But that is exactly what we are going to attempt to do today, uh, to focus our attention on the reading of God's word. Uh, you know that in the past, when we've had some of these longer portions we've skipped over, uh, some of the sections. I've given you homework reading to catch up later. Uh, but today we really do need, I think, to read uh, both chapters together. And that's because if we skip over any of this, I think we're going to miss uh, one of the primary impressions that this text is supposed to make upon us. Uh, that is just how cumulative all of this is to the point that it's almost overwhelming. I think you're going to see that as we read. Uh, the chapter begins, uh, chapter 28 begins by laying out the offerings that are to be given to the Lord every day of the year. It tells us two lambs, one in the morning, one in the evening, uh, seven days a week, 52 uh, weeks of the year, 365 days over and over and over and over again. And it tells us that that is the baseline. Because as the passage moves on, uh, through the Sabbath offerings, through the monthly offerings, through all the various feasts, you will hear a key word repeated. That word is besides. It shows up for the first time in chapter 8, uh, excuse me, chapter 28, verse 10. It says, this is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. That is, when the Sabbath came around each week, there were extra offerings to be made, not in place of the regular offering, but in addition to it, in addition to this regular offering. And so it was with the months, with the festivals, with the days of special convocation. There is a compounding effect as we read through this passage. And by the time we get to the end of it, I think we're supposed to be almost overcome by the sheer quantity of it all. And I think that's on purpose. And so we are going to read these two chapters. I want to encourage you as we read to listen to that compounding language and to allow the repetition of this text to have its impression upon you. I want you to, to if you can, try and understand just how much it is that the Lord is requiring of his people. Uh, now, with that uh, long introduction to a long text, let us pray and let us come together to God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we pray that you would give us attention uh, on your word. Focus our minds, focus our hearts, that we may see what you required of your people and what you have fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe in him and lead us to yourself through him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now hear God's word as we find it in Numbers chapters 28 and 29. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering... My food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. 
two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hin of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil and its drink offering, this is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. At the beginning of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish, also three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil for each bull, and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil for one ram. And a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil is a grain offering for every lamb, for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offerings shall be half a hin of wine for a bull, a third a hin of a wine for a ram, and a quarter of a hin for each lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. Also one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offerings. On the fourteenth day of the first month is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of this month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a food offering, a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old. See that they are without blemish. Also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull, and two-tenths for a ram, a tenth you shall offer for each of the seven lambs, and also one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is for a regular burnt offering. In the same way you shall offer daily, for seven days, the food for a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, it shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. On the day of the first fruits, when you offer a grain offering of new grain to the Lord at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a burnt offering. With a pleasing aroma to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, with one male goat to make atonement for you. Besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering, you shall offer them and their drink offerings. See that they are without blemish. Beginning now, chapter 29. On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets, and you shall offer a burnt offering for pleasing aroma to the Lord. One bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish. 
Also, their grain offerings of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, with one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you, besides the burnt offering of the new moon and its grain offering, and the regular burnt offering and its grain offering, and their drink offering, according to the rule for them, for pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation, and afflict yourselves. You shall do no work, but you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, see that they are without blemish. And their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement, and the regular burnt offering in its grain offering and their drink offerings. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. And you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, thirteen bulls from the herd, two rams, fourteen male lambs a year old, and they shall be without blemish. And their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the fourteen lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the second day, twelve bulls from the herd, two rams, fourteen male lambs, a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and drink offerings for the bulls and the rams and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings. Pause here and point out that over the next uh, six days of the feast, uh, there's the counting down from 13 bulls down to seven. You'll see that as we go through. Verse 20. On the third day, 11 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offering for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, and the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, and its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the fourth day, ten bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offering for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, and the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the fifth day, nine bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old without blemish, with a grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs in prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and drink offering. On the sixth day, eight bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old without blemish, with the grain offerings and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offerings. On the seventh day, seven bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, a year old without blemish, with a grain offering and drink offering for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs, in their prescribed quantities. And also, one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull, 
one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish, and the grain offering and the drink offering for the bull, the ram, and for the lambs in prescribed quantities, also one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. These you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts. In addition to your vow offerings, your free will offerings, for your burnt offerings and for your grain offerings, and for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. So Moses told the people of Israel everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Uh, thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together uh, today. Well, I, I'm uh, finding it, I, I was finding it this week, pretty hard to ignore the providential timing of this text. I certainly did not set out uh, at the beginning with a plan to preach on this particular passage uh, at the beginning of January. Uh, here we are, many people still thinking about resolutions and goals for the new year. I'm still getting emails in my inbox uh, giving me new year deals and, and trying to set up a whole year of, of patronage for all sorts of different uh, mailing lists and things like that. Uh, but here we are at the beginning of our own year, first Sunday in uh, 2024, and we're walking through these chapters where the Lord is setting down his priorities for an entire year's worth of worship in the tabernacle. I think it's a, a confrontation with the fact that our time, just like all the other possessions that we like to imagine we possess, our time doesn't really belong to us at all. That's the first lesson that we have about worship in this passage. Now, the lesson is that worship shows us who we belong to. That's our first point. Worship shows us who we belong to. You know, perhaps that many people, when they think about worship, uh, or when they visit a church, or they come back from a church, and they evaluate a worship service, many of us do it on the basis of what worship does for us. We evaluate it on the perceived effect that worship produces. In some Christian traditions, uh, the deciding factor is on how worship makes you feel. Did you leave the service lifted up, or, or were you cast down? Were you encouraged or were you offended? Did you get chills down your spine while you were singing that song you love so much? Some traditions focus on the feeling that worship makes. In our Presbyterian tradition, I think we are tempted to reduce everything down to the factor of edification. We hear this sometimes when people are changing churches. They say things like, you know, I couldn't stay there because I wasn't being fed. Uh, the worship wasn't edifying. Typically, they mean by that is something like the sermons weren't deep enough. They weren't challenging enough. I wasn't being built up. Now, of course, worship should be edifying. Uh, Paul told the Corinthians when they were all excited about their favorite spiritual gifts uh, that worship is not about puffing ourselves up, but it's about building one another up. It should be edifying. And of course, good biblical worship will encourage us with the gospel. It will often leave us feeling more assured of God's good promises than we were when we started. Worship is always fellowship with our God, and fellowship with God is bound to have an effect on us. But we also need to know that feelings and theology aside, worship is not meant for us in the first place. Worship doesn't belong to us. In fact, worship is meant to remind us that we belong to somebody else. That's why before the list of bulls and the rams and all of these other animals, the Lord says in verse 2 of chapter 28, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, 
my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And then for two chapters, the Lord goes on to make very deep and very costly demands upon what and when his people are required to surrender to him in worship. But it all begins with the basic premise that whatever they offer to the Lord in worship is something that already belongs to him anyway. He's the one who controls their possessions. He's the one who orders their time. He is the God who owns everything he has created. And worship is not only our opportunity, but our obligation to acknowledge that all we are is his already. So in worship, God makes demands on us. He makes demands on our time. In the days of the Old Testament, the the order of God's time for his people was much more elaborate than it is now. It all began with that daily offering, that one lamb every morning and evening, and it was meant to be a perpetual, regular, uninterrupted offering before the Lord. But then besides that regular offering, if you're paying attention and breaking it down, these chapters mention seven, seven, excuse me, seven special times of offering to the Lord. They go on to mention the Sabbath, the new moon, they mention the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is later known as Pentecost, They mention the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, seven sacrificial ceremonies spanning the entire Israelite calendar, reminding the people that all of their days, every single one of them, belongs to the Lord their God. Of course, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that all these ceremonial requirements were merely a shadow of the substance that was to come in Christ Jesus. That's why our mandatory church calendar is much much simpler than the one that God gave to the Israelites. For us, the Sabbath day has become the day of the Lord, and that's it. We do not celebrate the Passover because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us once and for all. We do not have a yearly day of atonement because every Sunday we mark the atonement that Jesus accomplished through his death and his resurrection. Our church calendar is much simpler than it used to be. But still, Our days belong to the Lord. Still, the regular rhythms of daily worship in home and weekly worship with God's people, they remind us that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We are God's possession, and worship is a reminder that we belong to him. So, worship makes demands of our time. And in worship, God stakes his claim on our possessions. So you notice again in verse 2, the Lord says, give to me what is mine, my offering, my food, my pleasing aroma. He calls it all a command, and he says, you must be careful to give it to me because it's mine. Now, if we think that we get off with a lighter requirement for the New Testament church, we are mistaken. The key to understanding all of that is that, that the offerings that the Lord details in this chapters were all burnt offerings. You're probably aware that there were several different kinds of offerings or sacrifices in the Old Testament. There were peace offerings, there were purification offerings, there were free will offerings, and some of those sacrifices were killed, and then the parts of the animal were eaten by the priests. Other sacrifices were shared with the worshiper, with the worshiper's family, or or whoever they would invite, but these were the burnt offerings. These were the animals that were completely consumed on the altar. This was the grain, this is the wine that was 
poured out that was burned up and nobody in Israel got to taste them. These are the ones that were completely sacrificed as a pleasing aroma to God alone. These were his offerings. And Paul picks up that same idea in Romans. He tells us in chapter 12 that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. He means that we are to be completely given over. That there's no compartment, there's no category held back in reserve for ourselves. And if the Lord owns our body, certainly he owns our bank accounts. It's true, of course, that God loves a cheerful giver. And he loves a cheerful giver because when we give to the Lord in worship, we have the opportunity to cheerfully acknowledge that all that we are belongs to the Lord. So here's the first lesson worship teaches us. With our time and with our possessions, worship teaches us who we belong to. The second lesson is like it. Worship teaches us what fellowship costs. Worship teaches us what fellowship costs. Now, for any modern reader of these chapters, the overwhelming impact of this text is not just how much God demands of his people, but specifically how much sacrifice he demands. That is, the sheer number of animals that God required to be slaughtered over and over again, day after day, year after year. And any good commentary will give you the tally. In the course of one year following this program, the Lord demanded 113 bulls, 32 rams, 13 goats, and 1,086 lambs. Again, those are just the burnt offerings. All the individual offerings, all the free will sacrifices, all of the Passover lambs for each family in Israel were added on top of this minimum requirement. So when the scriptures focus on the pleasing aroma that ascended to the Lord, we probably have a hard time not imagining the terrible quantity of blood that must have been poured at the base of the altar. Your body, depending on your size, uh, how well you've done with last year's uh, New Year's resolutions, I suppose, your body contains about 10 pints of blood. A full-size bull contains somewhere around 10 gallons. That's why later uh, writers, uh, Jewish rabbis, described the offerings on the Day of Atonement like a river, like a stream of blood that was so thick that it flowed west out of the temple and then southward down into the Kidron Valley. In a sense, that's that's not so much, right? Any, any slaughterhouse in America does at least that much business in a year. But the point is that all of this blood in numbers, all this death isn't hidden away somewhere. It's not locked up in some stainless steel-lined industrial facility. This is what God required for his gathered, public, worshiping people. You remember, of course, that when the Lord gave uh, his people instructions for the layout of the tabernacle, he made sure to have the priests set up the altar right there in the open, not tucked away in secret where nobody could find it. In fact, when the people drew near for worship, practically all they could see was the altar. There was, of course, a lampstand, there was an ark, there was a table for the showbread, but all those things were hidden. And all that the people saw when they drew near was a big tent with the canvas closed and a bronze altar burning with the smoke of daily sacrifice. Now, when we consider these things, surely we have to say that these things are written for our instruction. 
The children's catechism reminds us that God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. God has no nose like we have noses, and yet he commands a pleasing aroma. He has no stomach like us, but he orders food to be brought. He does not thirst the way that we do, and yet he calls for drink to be poured out. Why does he do it? Well, because the Lord was teaching his people that there is no access to him apart from sacrifice. There is no fellowship with God without a reminder of sin. There is no way to draw near to the creator without first understanding just how far away you really are. That's why Gordon Wenham writes that when we encounter sacrifice in the scriptures, he says we touch the heart of biblical worship. Sacrifice was not the only thing that people did at the tabernacle or, or later in the temple. They sang psalms and, and they prayed prayers. They gathered for instruction much like we do. But when they gathered, they always gathered for sacrifice. There was never a single service of worship in the Old Testament that was without it. There was never supposed to be a single day that was out without sacrifice. And so sacrifice is the heart of biblical worship. That is because sacrifice not only reminds us of the fellowship that we've lost by our sin, but it also promises the hope of being restored to the Father. Throughout these chapters, you notice that God describes these burnt offerings over and over as a pleasing aroma. Well, the first time that that phrase appears in the Bible is all the way back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. It happens there that after the flood, uh, subsided from the face of the earth. It happens after Noah and his family came out of the ark and they came out to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And Genesis chapter 8 tells us, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Did you hear that? In the fires of sacrifice, the Lord agrees that man is incurably sinful. He agrees that our sin deserves wrath and displeasure, that sin corrodes our fellowship with God from the inside out, and it must be eradicated. And yet, when the Lord smells this pleasing aroma, he chooses to extend grace rather than judgment. To use a very Old Testament-sounding phrase, we could say that in the sacrifice, God's wrath is appeased. The punishment for sin is placed on a substitute, and the anger of God gives way to his welcome. And over and over again in Numbers, the Lord is telling his people, if you want to come near to me, you must come to the substitutionary death of a sacrifice in your place. There is no other access. Now, of course, it's not a very big leap from this shadow of the old covenant into the substance of the new, because we know that when Jesus came to begin his ministry, John the Baptist pointed to him and called him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is our substitute. He is both our great high priest and he is the sacrificial lamb who became a pleasing aroma to satisfy the justice of God. It is only through his bloody death that we are able to come near to the God who is separate from sinners. C.S. Lewis captures it beautifully uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
You remember perhaps that after Edmund uh, is condemned as a traitor, the lion offers himself as a sacrifice on his behalf. And once he's been redeemed by that payment, Edmund not only lives, but he goes on to reign as the king in Narnia. In fact, he not only reigns as a king in Narnia, but he becomes known to everyone as Edmund the Just. In other words, Edmund the Righteous One. From a rebel to righteous and from a criminal to a king, and there is only one factor that can account for such a change. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Did you hear that? He says, having been justified, we have peace. Having peace, we are brought near. Being brought near, we rejoice. In other words, we worship. Through the sacrifice of our Savior, we have access to the Father, and through him, we can come into worship. And so worship shows us, first, who we belong to. Worship shows us what our fellowship costs. Finally, worship assures us of what God can provide. Now, those of you who are numerically inclined among us, you may have noticed the repetition of the number seven in our reading. Seven, of course, is the biblical number of perfection, symbolic perfection. Uh, and as the Lord told his people the way that they ought to worship him, he peppered his instructions with, with multiples of perfection. So we've spoken of the seven seasons of offering uh, in addition to the sacrifice, but then there are the services in which either seven or 14 lambs are sacrificed at a time. Then there are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Tabernacles, in which the celebration goes on for seven days in a row. And in fact, if you notice uh, chapter 29, the entire chapter is devoted to the offerings that the Lord required during the seventh month of the Jewish year. Just like the seventh day uh, of the week, the seventh month was set apart as holy to the Lord. And in that month, God's people were required to observe three different festivals. On the first day of the month was a day for trumpets and celebration. Today, uh, Jewish people know that as Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of their new year. On the 10th day was the Day of Atonement. It was a day for fasting. It was a day for repentance. It was a day to hear the message of God's forgiveness through sacrifice. And then beginning on the 15th day of the month, they were to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, in the Feast of Tabernacles, there is this vastly larger number of animals that was to be offered to the Lord. And that countdown scenario of the bulls seems a little strange until you do the math. Until you add it all up and you find that in the seven main days of the feast, the people sacrificed 70 bulls, 14 rams, 7 goats, and 98 lambs. That's 7 times 7 times 2. And then on the eighth day, one more bull, one more ram, one more goat, and seven more lambs. Now, if you've seen all of that, I suppose you could come to differing conclusions. You could see it all as, as something like superstition, some elaborate uh, scenario that, that an ancient people have put together. You might conclude that there's something magical about the number seven. 
Or you could conclude that through these rituals, the Lord is teaching his people what worship is really meant to be. He's showing them how it should be perfect. It should be abundant. He's showing them how worship, really right down at the core of it, worship is something that is beyond the power of God's people to produce for themselves. You know, the interesting uh, thing about the Feast of Tabernacles is that when the Lord originally instituted it, it had a different name. When it first appears in Exodus chapter 23, it's called the Feast of the Ingathering. Uh, it was meant to be a harvest festival. It marked the end of the agricultural year, and it looked forward and rejoicing with hope uh, to the God who could provide for them for another season. And that's what it was called while the people were still at Sinai, while they were uh, still giddy with, with the idea of a quick trip across the desert. Then it was called the Feast of the Ingathering. But then as the unbelief of God's people increased, and as their time in the wilderness wore on, the Lord gave it a new name. So in Leviticus 23, for the first time, it's called the Feast of Booths, or sometimes the Feast of Tabernacles. There we read in Leviticus 23, verse 39, it says that on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. And you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel to dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Now, in other words, as the people learned more about themselves, as they learned more about the God who was rescuing them, their worship took on a new significance. Not only was the seventh month a time for rejoicing and a time for repentance and for gathering in God's goodness, it also became a month for remembering that if they had been left to their own devices, they would have been lost in the desert like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we've been away for numbers for a while, but don't forget that these commandments are being given to the people on the very doorstep of the promised land. In chapter 27, we just read of the promised inheritance to the daughters of Zelophehad. And we read of Joshua being called to, to be the new leader for God's people into the promised land. The nation is standing on the precipice of their inheritance. And as they are about to cross over in the Jordan River, the Lord is detailing for them this sacrificial ritual that is so massive, that is so expensive, that unless the Lord fulfills his promises, obedience is outside of their ability. That's why one commentator says that there is a ring of triumph as the Lord counts off these required offerings. That's because in addition to all these beasts, God demanded that his people bring them the abundance of a land that they don't yet possess. Each year, he's going to require more than a ton of the finest flour, more than a thousand bottles of wine and oil of the highest quality. And it is a demand in which every respect is beyond the capacity of the people to produce. But it is not beyond the capacity of the Lord to provide for them. That, again, is another principle of biblical worship. All that God requires of his people, he provides for them out of the abundance of his grace. It's not just the story of the beginning of our Christian lives. It's the story of every sacrifice and every praise that we offer to God while we live in our poor, sinful, broken bodies. 
Our hearts are dead and our sins and our transgressions. But the Lord raises us up through faith in the Savior that he has sent. Our senses are dull and our minds are slow, but the Lord gives us spiritual understanding that we don't have of ourselves, understanding to hear and to respond to the commands of the Lord. We often come into worship with our shoulders heavy. We come in with the cares of the world filling our minds, but you have probably experienced it. Those times of worship where where you're giving yourself to prayer and to song and to receiving the word preached, but you find at the same time that God is filling you with far more than you could ever be able to give to him. We see it also in the Lord's Supper. Week by week, our God calls us into fellowship, and he sets the table with the righteousness of his Son. He gives us our substitute and our guarantee of his goodness. There's a benediction that I use uh, more often than, than most others. It comes from Hebrews chapter 13. It speaks about the abundance of the Lord to fill his people with his very own fullness. And Hebrews 13 says, May the God who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep equip you with every good thing working in you that is pleasing in his sight. That's what the people of Israel found through their worship. They found that he is the God who can make demands that only he can meet. He's the God who fills the hands of his people with good things so that they can give back to him. They found in worship that there is assurance that God is able to provide all that he requires from his people. And I hope, dear believer, that you have discovered the same of our God through worship. I want to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we close today. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, our Lord, we thank you for the gift of worship. Even today, separated uh, by miles and snow, uh, we thank you that we can gather together and we can hear your word. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts uh, to give us joy in you. We pray much more that you would be glorified as we worship you. Give us lives that we may give to you. Uh, so that you would be glorified among your people and built up uh, your reputation and glory built up among those who see and hear of your wonderful works. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, uh, finally, hear God's good word for you, his benediction all over again. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the, eternal, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.